I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Michelle Carroll is the host of The News Diet, a daily news show currently on YouTube for those who want to learn about the world without the typical anxiety or fear often associated with the news industry. With a degree in international studies and a background in media, Michelle's combining these passions to create spaces where learning about the world can be easy and empowering. Michelle, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Well, I'm glad it's an all-around pleasure. And to help us better understand your perspective and how you got where you are today, I'd like to kick us off by quoting something you said. Quote, for every outraged tweeter or virtue signaler, we think there's someone out there quietly begging for a deeper and more thoughtful way of navigating through the chaos, end quote. And while this could be a description of your short-form YouTube show, The News Diet, with its calm and nonpartisan analysis of hot-button and often contentious news events in under 10 minutes, it's actually a line from the introduction to your previous show, Exploring Minds, which was a long-form interview show with discussions lasting one to two hours in length. You had some pretty heavy hitters on your show, from renowned cognitive scientist and humanistic psychologist Scott Barry Kaufman, author and Brookings Institute fellow Shadi Hamad, to podcaster and cultural commentator Coleman Hughes. Topics ranged from human trafficking to Bitcoin to gender roles, wage suppression, identity politics, democracy in the Middle East, and more. I've got two questions that are interlinked. What inspired you to begin exploring minds in 2018? What was the inciting incident, the very moment you realized you had to start the show? And what brought the show to an end in 2019 as it was accelerating both in popularity and prestige? Yeah. So Exploring Minds, first of all, I'll just say with Exploring Minds, I loved doing that show so much. In many ways, I think Exploring Minds was actually very similar to what you're doing here with this show. And I'll get you know more into the details on this, but it was so broad and intentionally deep, if you will. We wanted our guests to go in-depth on their expertise and this was in 2000, I guess. Um, 2018, I believe. Oh, thanks <laughs> for reminding me. <laughs> we started prepping the show, uh, I think around 2017. We were we were putting that show together for quite a while before it launched. And so during those years of 2017, 18, this was right when the podcast world was really starting to explode. And by podcast, I mean, particularly the long form, conversational format. And I just feel so lucky that that was something that we got to jump on. It, it wasn't like early, early days, but you know, you fast forward to now and it's kind of everywhere. So I feel very lucky that we were able to jump in that space when it was still a little fresher. And it felt that way and it was, it was really cool. But how it started was I had a little endeavor before Exploring Minds called LA Lady, actually. That was it was kind of my first step into doing something on my own. And I like to think of myself as equal parts creative and analytical. So I loved this idea. And to this day, this is still kind of what I do. I really want to do something that that I was able to use my creative side. So LA Lady was an online magazine. So it was like editorial, creative direction, but then obviously analytical. You know, it was still kind of a business. You know, it was tiny, but it was still a business. And you have an editorial schedule, you have booking, you have this more logical side. So I was really interested in that. And so I was I was having fun and I was exploring that. And what LA Lady was was I essentially interviewed and profiled influential women in Los Angeles. 
And I had no idea what I was doing, by the way. It was just this idea I had. And I was kind of craving to do something that I was in control of. Before that, I was in the entertainment industry. And, you know, we can talk about it if you want, but there's not a lot of control in the entertainment industry. So this was my way of having that. And so, yeah, I was doing that. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I was learning as I was going. And it was this really, really cool experience of just finding my own way. And at the time, it was an online magazine. So I was scheduling photo shoots with the girls, still photography. And then I would publish the interviews in a text format for people to read. But I wanted to take it into a video format. And again, this was the time when um, even before the long form format kind of exploded and Exploring Minds came up, this was like when even just short form podcasts were still, I think they were becoming more mainstream. Like to be perfectly honest, I didn't even know what a podcast was at this time, but I had this idea that I wanted to take these interviews to video. I was so clueless in this world. I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew I wanted to do it. So anyway, I reached out at that time to a buddy of mine in the entertainment industry who's a filmmaker, my buddy, Zach Bennett. And I asked him if he could just kind of help me figure out how to set this thing up. I mean, the, the idea of getting equipment and putting together a set and this audio, I had no, it was so overwhelming to me. I think I had at that time, bought a ring light on Amazon. And I was like, can you help me set this up? How does this work? And he's just like, oh, honey, you need, you need a lot of help. So anyway, he came by and found out what I was doing. And kind of a long story short, he was really interested in what I was trying to do with this show. He ended up coming on board and we ended up partnering up, which was really, really cool because he had this whole breadth of knowledge in an area that I didn't and vice versa. So it was a really good partnership in that way. But as we were having these conversations on what we wanted this to be, it became very apparent that what we actually wanted to do and what really fired us up was kind of transcendent of just successful career women, which is kind of what LA Lady was. We really wanted to explore all the corners of the world. I mean, gosh, politics, technology, culture, like everything. We kind of just wanted to go there. I mean, it was intentionally broad. And now that doesn't sound so weird. But at that time, that wasn't really how productions and interviews were done. This was when like Joe Rogan was really starting to blow up. But in 2017, we would explain this to friends and family they'd be like, nobody's going to want to listen to a one to two to three hour long interview. You literally can't do that. And we're like, yes, we can. <laughs> so that's how Exploring Minds started. I, I had this little, this other little endeavor and then partnered up with Zach and we just ended up pivoting. I would love to just dig deeper into what the roots of Exploring Minds were and why you chose the topics you chose to talk about, right? There's another quote that you have from your introduction for that show back in 2018, quote, what worries me the most isn't politicians or climate change or artificial intelligence or the deficit or corruption or Bitcoin. And this part's key. It's feeling like I can't talk about any of it. We've ended up in this paradigm where it's okay to have really strong opinions about these issues, but it's not okay to have actual conversations about them. We're somehow expected to have full understandings of these really complex topics, but solely through buzzwords and talking heads and clickbait. And that model just doesn't work for me, end quote. 
And so I guess you've said long story short, but I think it's okay to make a long story long or at least a (laughs) long story medium length. So your podcast was, I guess you could say general interest, but it did revolve around the thesis of what I just quoted back to you, which is I do feel like, and I think a lot of people feel this, and I've definitely gotten emails from fans of this podcast, and I saw comments on your YouTube channel for Exploring Minds with people expressing a similar sentiment of sometime in the last 10 years or so, it feels like a lot of stuff just got broken. And one of the things that broke was our ability to have important conversations about potentially contentious or hot button issues. So jumping from LA Lady Magazine to Exploring Minds is is a kind of leap, as you were mentioning going from just business women to more general interest. But within that umbrella of general interest, you were deciding to talk about a very specific subset of topics because of what I kind of just quoted back to you. So was there anything going on in your life at that time or your circle of friends or society in general that just caused you to want to say like, I just have to talk about this stuff and I'm frustrated that I can't and I want to try and model a better kind of conversation with this show? Yeah, there were things, plural, that kind of led to the decision that turned into Exploring Minds. I'll say it was almost like a trend that, I don't want to speak for Zach, but we did have a lot of conversations on these trends that we were both feeling and we were concerned about him. And I think that that's ultimately what we're alluding to in the intro that you just read, which was this very weird... And I mean, unfortunately, I think it's still going on today, but this very weird notion of you're allowed to be very opinionated, you're allowed to be very loud, you're even allowed to be insulting if it's in the name of your cause. Encouraged. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You are incentivized to be (laughs) insulting in, in some ways, but you're not expected to actually sit down and have a conversation about these things. It was very perplexing to me that you could have conversations about these things all day long within your inner circles and with people who agreed with you. But as soon as it stepped outside of that inner circle, it became an issue. And I I mean, yeah, I guess in, in one kind of specific area of my life that I think it became really apparent to me and then I started seeing it in a lot of other areas, I think did have to do with LA Lady a little bit. So LA Lady, I mean, as you can probably imagine, it rooted out of My desire to get to know these really admirable and driven women who have done really, really cool things with their careers and their lives. I had the pleasure of featuring world-class athletes and founders of billion-dollar companies and these women that just did such cool things, you know, at that time. So I started LA Lady 2014. So at that time, you know, was the rise of (laughs) kind of girl boss culture, which in many ways, was really cool. I mean, you know, what's wrong with highlighting driven women? Nothing, right? I would say at that time, I was probably deeper into feminist culture, and I considered myself a feminist, and and this was my way of contributing to that cause. As the years went on, and as I got to know more about the feminist cause or movement or whatnot, and I actually started to seek out all opinions on the movement. Like, why would people even be against this? What is there to even be against feminism and whatnot? And the more I, I learn, the more I'm like, oh, you know, there, there actually are some decent points to be made here that I think are really interesting. But I think it's interesting that I had never heard of this before. And when I started to bring up these points to this community that I had built over the last couple of years of doing the magazine... I started experiencing more pushback than I 
ever did before, which was really interesting. I remember going to, there was, um, you know, in, in Los Angeles, there's always events. because There's just always stuff going on in the city. And anyway, there was this one, it was a feminist panel going on where they were going to talk about feminist issues. <laughs> great. And it was supposed to be like a, an open Q&A. And I thought, oh, okay, this is great. There's a panel of women who kind of have dedicated their lives to this. I would love to be able to ask a couple questions about what I've learned and see what their responses are. And we got there and I learned pretty quickly that asking questions that weren't along a certain narrative weren't really going to be received well. And that it was an echo chamber, you know, that term, I know it's been overused at this point, but that's what it was. And that was really disappointing to me. It's kind of moments like that when I started realizing there's a problem here. And it's that we get our tribes and we feel good in these tribes and we're being educated in these tribes. And that's great. But as soon as you start to get out of that bubble, then it becomes an issue. So yeah, that kind of opened my eyes to how difficult it is to kind of merge, how to merge different perspectives, which is bizarre. So that's one example, but it was several of those experiences that really made us realize that a huge issue here and a root of many of our problems has to do with the inability to bridge the different perspectives. So when we were talking about taking LA Lady to video, I think at that point, I knew that my interest was beyond that. I've been in this world and it's great. There was so much goodness that came out of that experience. But I think we knew that the next chapter, we needed to broaden our horizons. Not to sound pretentious, but for the sake of everyone, we, we really wanted to be a part of this movement. Our contribution was trying to bring everyone together, as opposed to just speaking to just one very specific group of people. And, you know, niching, that's a very effective thing. It's a very good thing in terms of business and reaching a target market and all that. But we just kind of wanted to blow that out of the water for Exploring Minds and just kind of see where that went. And that's what I really loved about that show. I came across it, I think, it was right around the time I came across Megan Daum's essay, Nuance, A Love Story, on Medium. And she expresses almost identical path as what you just described. And she articulates something that you just articulated as well, which is that I would say it's not so much that once we step outside of our friend circles and try and take our opinions into the wider world, that's potentially the most dangerous thing. I would say that it's when we try and offer a even 10% different opinion than what is considered the gospel within our ideological silos that we start getting the most potential pushback, right? And whether those are friend groups or larger ideological tribes like political parties or activist circles, et cetera, once you step outside the boundaries that are set by your inner circle, you, you can risk excommunication. In, in fact, the problem is actually so great now that you see it getting parodied on places like Saturday Night Live. There's this ongoing sketch on SNL called Dinner Discussion. And I think they've done four of them. One of them was about Aziz Ansari. One of them was about, you know, the best way to react to and handle COVID. And it's just like these six or seven friends around like a dinner table, usually at a restaurant, and they're all having a nice conversation. And then all of a sudden, one of them brings up like, so what do you guys think about what happened to Aziz? <laughs> and then the lighting gets really dramatic. <laughs> all the light goes away and it's now spotlights on people's faces. 
and it does these dramatic close-ups on each individual dinner party member's face. And they're all like, careful, <laughs> easy. They all start sweating. And they're like, well, what I meant was, is that, you know, maybe there's a potential that maybe what he did wasn't careful, <laughs> easy. And we laugh because like all comedy, if I'm being honest, we laugh at comedy because it's rooted in truth. We laugh at that sketch because it's true. And, and whether it's our circles here in Los Angeles, you know, where topics around identity, race, gender, sex, et cetera, and then any subtopic connected to it, immigration, sex segregated sports, et cetera, like anything that touches those things is like that dinner discussion on SNL. If you're in a very ideologically similar circle of friends, which is most people. And then I imagine in more conservative circles in other parts of the US, there's going to be other things like climate change, probably also immigration, race, et cetera, where everyone, again, has this kind of similar view that they've gotten from pundits or that they've seen online. And then there are these views that just get adopted as the quote-unquote view you should have. And then whether you're left or right, that's just the marching order. But if you want to explore topics or explore minds in a nuanced and frankly interesting way that is less about parroting a talking point than it is about actually getting to the bottom of what truth is, you get into really dangerous territory. And I think you're absolutely right. Exploring Minds came up at a really crucial inflection point in what was happening with podcasting. And podcasts used to mean one thing, used to mean like audio only, usually fairly niche, weekly recordings about a particular set of subjects. But now, kind of like how phone, when you say, I have a phone, it doesn't mean what it meant 30 years ago, which was literally like something that you could only make calls on connected to a wall. And now it's a computer that is thousand times more powerful than what got us to the moon. And you can play like cat videos on it. (laughs) (laughs) These words just take on larger and larger meanings. But I think that exploring minds was really vital. That's how I initially came across your work. I think you were doing something really important with it. And I think that the fact that it was as popular as it was back when you were hosting it spoke to something that was really happening in our culture at the time and continues to happen, which speaks to the success of, you know, the Joe Rogan podcast and others. Yeah. And that's so funny about that SNL skit. I didn't know that that skit existed. And I think that that's <laughs> it's so funny. I'll put it in the show notes. It's great. It's so true. And and look, you know, there's a place in time for these types of conversations. I would probably agree with that example of when you're just kind of hanging out with friends or, you know, the stereotype is, you know, you go to Thanksgiving dinner with your family. And it's like, that's probably not the place in time to start talking sensitive topics. But I think what was so weird and what is so weird to me today is these designated intellectual spaces that still don't allow for diversity of perspective. So like that example of the SNL skit where they're sitting around the table with your family. I mean, it's still kind of the same towing the line in a lot of these spaces and figures that their job is to be an intellectual in these areas, but they're treating it as if it's offensive to push back on their ideas. And that's just bizarre to me. Right, because it should be about the pursuit of truth, especially when you're dealing with people who are actually implementing policy and are our leaders and have large and often substantial influences we should expect the people that we put in charge of things or that we look to for guidance, we should expect that they of all people should be pursuing, maybe truth is too large of a word, but at least should be examining all of the angles in pursuit of what actually happened. In fact, 
one of the best examples that I can think of is Dr. Alina Chan was a guest of the show in episode 31 back in 2021. She's a molecular biologist and a dedicated scientist at the Broad Institute at MIT and Harvard. She was alarmed at the suppression of information and inquiry around the origins of COVID-19. In 2020, even suggesting that the virus may have accidentally leaked from a lab would get you censored on Facebook, even if you were a news organization. Yes. <laughs> and so to loop that into sensitive topics around the dinner table with family, I think the concern is that the sphere of what is considered sensitive is getting wider and wider and wider to the point where I think a lot of people are walking around thinking like, I disagree with what the talking point is in the mainstream news, and I feel crazy for disagreeing with it. And I wonder if anyone else feels crazy like me. But the problem is it's hard to find those other people that feel crazy when everyone's afraid to say that they feel crazy. Yes, yes. And it's so hard now because, again, the the incentive structures of the way that we get our, our I mean, I'm alluding to pretty much social media here, social media and say 24-7 news cycles, which I think are a big root of the problem here because I think that the incentive systems are to be loud and boisterous and not to be curious and nuanced, unfortunately. And I think that that's a huge problem. And I think that that's starting to leak into our real world lives. I mean, it used to be that these spaces, oh, that's just online. That's just Twitter. It's, you know, what else? That's not the real world. And I think that it's starting to become that, unfortunately. I have this general rule of the louder you are about your opinions, the more likely you should be to debate them and to discuss them when people want to talk about them with you. And that's not the case. The case is you can be loud and boisterous and insulting, but it's okay to be offended when people try to push back on that. I don't think that that's how it should go. It's like if you don't want to go there in terms of debate and discussion, then great, that's fine. But I don't think you should also be able to just kind of go off on your own in your own little corner and be like, you're not allowed to talk back to me. And that's pretty much where we're at. You know, I was actually just watching an interview on Lex Friedman's podcast with Destiny. His name is Stephen Bonnell. Destiny is the moniker he goes by on Twitch and YouTube where he gets into these long-form debates, often with people who vehemently disagree with him. He's very much on the left. He would consider himself progressive or far left. He will do these like 10 or 12-hour long streams or he'll bring on everyone from fellow progressives to literal self-proclaimed Nazis and debate them. Oh, wow. He's crafted his debate skills over 10 plus years of doing this 10 to 12 hours a day, day in and day out, five, six days a week for a decade. And his quote on Lex Friedman really stuck with me. It kind of solidified this view that has been circling around in my head in a way that was so articulate that I'm probably going to butcher the quote, but the feeling of it was, if you believe in democracy and you believe that democracy is the best way to govern, which I imagine you and I both do, and Destiny certainly does. And he was kind of using this language to try and convince people on the left, right? He's like, if you're on the left and you believe in democracy, and of course, this is my own commentary. I'm sure there are many, many people on the right who believe in democracy as well. But his whole thing was, if you're on the left and you believe in democracy and you believe that democracy matters, right? Then that means that you believe that the voters' opinion and what their choice is in a democracy is valid, right? Every vote counts. If democracy is legitimate, then you believe in the person in the voting booth to make a choice. 
and you validate that choice. But the way that we get to make our choices in democracy is through having conversations about what ideas we want to put forth in polls, in elections, who we want to elect, what their ideas are, what the propositions are, right? And so if you believe in democracy and you think that we should be ruled by a democracy and not like an oligarchy or a king, then you have to allow for people to talk about these issues because those issues are going to be at the ballot box. And if you don't trust people to have difficult conversations, oftentimes conversations that might even be a little bit scary because you might hear ideas that offend you. But if you don't believe in a person having that conversation to be able to get all the information and then make the right decision, if you think that just them hearing some scary idea from someone on the alt-right or a Nazi, or if you're on the right, someone from the very far left who has kooky ideas about whatever you think are extreme, if you think that that person's instantly going to convert the moment that they hear an idea that you disagree with, then you don't believe in democracy because you don't trust the voters to make informed decisions. And the way that he put it that way so crystallized that idea in my mind because the very nature of expressing ideas and discussing them and hashing them out and having messy, complicated, sometimes even offensive conversations about difficult issues is part and parcel with the very act of democracy, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, democracy is messy and it should be. If it's not messy, then that means it's one tone, which is unnatural, doesn't make sense, like probably means people are, I mean, that when I think of like one tone, I think of an authoritarian state. I mean, I think of something like everyone in gray jumpsuits. <laughs> yeah, I think I think of North Korea or something like that. Where the beauty of democracy, the beauty of freedom is that it is, and not just the beauty, by the way, the nature is it's going to be messy and it's going to be a constant evolution and a constant back and forth. I mean, you know, kind of cracks me up about this discussion around diversity, which I think all of us or hopefully most of us can agree that a diverse society is a good thing. But there's so much advocacy for diversity. But at the same time, there's this squashing of the idea that you just said of having a lot of back and forths and allowing your ideas to be stress tested. And it's okay to be in a an area of uncertainty. It's okay to not know. It's okay. I think I had a tweet pinned to my Twitter for a long time that was like, just so you know, it's okay to say, I don't know. That's okay to admit that you don't know the answer to everything. It's okay to say, I don't have an opinion on this, or I want to have an opinion on this, but guess what? I'm just simply not educated on all the things, or I am educated to the point that I'm educated. There's so much more I can know about this thing. It's just all very messy. And for some reason, people don't want to embrace the messiness. They want to stay in an energy of certainty and stability, which just doesn't really make sense when you're trying to solve really complex issues, which everything is. I mean, everyone acts so sure in their stances. I think it was Dr. John Deloney I was listening to, and I think he described it as we're living in a declaration culture where everyone has to declare how they feel about something, you know, whatever the issue of the day is, you have to declare how you feel about it. And I'm actually writing a piece about this right now, about 
the danger of that for a few different reasons, but I think a big one is that when you publicly align yourself with a certain way of thinking, it makes it that much harder to then retract that if and when you change your mind on something, if and when you get more information and maybe you realize that this is a lot more nuanced than you realize, it makes it a lot harder to be like, oh, everyone, I apologize. I know I came out very strongly about this one thing, but you know what? Uh, I think I'm actually pivoting a little bit. And I think that that's a shame because I think that destiny makes an incredible point. If you want an informed populace to be voting, right, which I imagine we all do, I imagine we don't want a populace of just ignorant citizens going to the polls, then you have to engage in these conversations. And by you, I mean literally you, me, anyone listening to this. It's not just the other side that needs to figure things out. It's not just the other side that needs to be educated. It's you. And I think that's great. I like that a lot. I mean, in specifically with elections, you hear this every cycle. You know, we just heard it. We just had, uh, well, I guess we're still going through the midterm elections. They haven't counted everything yet, but voting advocates come out and they always say, like, make sure you get your vote in. Every vote matters. This is the biggest election of our time. In other words, a lot of the messaging is pretty much saying, make sure you come out and vote for my candidate. I'll hear this with a lot of friends, especially during the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections, just, you know, conversations amongst ourselves, you know, everyone's saying like, oh my gosh, you, you know, so-and-so didn't want to vote. And I was like, you have to vote. You have to vote. It's so important. And in my mind, I was thinking, but you don't even know who they were going to vote for. You're just kind of assuming they're going to vote for who you want them to vote for. And that's kind of weird. So I think that's great. Yeah, political ads these days, even ones that claim to be nonpartisan, remind me in many ways of how absurd ads for medicine are. How medicine should work in an ideal society and and really every other country aside from America is you don't feel well, you go to the doctor, the doctor who's an expert assesses you and then prescribes you medication if you need it. Our current system is a commercial for medicine will come up you know, featuring a beautiful woman or a handsome man in a field of daisies or whatever looking great. And then it'll end with, ask your doctor if Promoxetab is right for you. Or, you know, ask your doctor. But And it's like, no, we shouldn't be asking our doctors to prescribe us medications. We should go to our doctors for advice on our condition. And if medication is necessary, they will figure out what medication is best for us. And kind of in a similar way, this idea that one, that every election is the election that could destroy our democracy if we don't vote the correct way (laughs) is actually super unhealthy. Democracy should be a matter of course, and it should be something that we do all the time, and it should be something we cherish and take advantage of. But this nonstop fear-mongering about how every election could end the world, this election is the Flight 93 election, every single time, it leads to exhaustion, despair, and it leads to more extremism because people feel like any attempt at nuance or maybe looking at what the other side's options might be isn't just exploring your own point of view and expanding your field of thought, you could be a traitor. The very idea that you could entertain someone on the other side and their view and you might vote for them if they convince you, you're not just a voter exercising his or her right. You are a traitor. And that is so dangerous. Oh my goodness. I know. Oh, what elections do to people. It's, you know, hilarious. Hilarious in that, you know, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. (laughs) Because... (laughs) 
choosing who you're going to vote for is a very, very personal decision. It's so personal. I think people act like it's a very simple decision. You know, it's really not. Sure, maybe it's a little more black and white when you're voting locally, probably. But the elections that really get people fired up are generally the national elections. Well, those encompass so much. I mean, the presidency, Congress, it's such a messy process, which, again, like I'm kind of down for the mess to a certain extent because there's just so much to think about with these things. But in terms of the conversation of voting and who people vote for, people act like it's a very simple decision. And it's not. Sure, you might have some who think a president's character is enough and they can go off that. Okay, fine. That your vote is your vote. You can make that decision for yourself. Others might choose certain issues. I'm going to go with the candidate that aligns with me on this one issue because that's what I feel the most strongly about. Fine. That's your vote. You do what you got to do. But then there's others who want to take a more holistic view and be like, okay, what are the implications of like voting someone with this character, but then this one has these policies in mind, or this is their track record. They want to take all this into consideration. So it's actually a very deep decision to make. And these political ads and just the general conversation around it, not even conversation, they're like yelling about it. People act like it's it's so easy and it's not. And yeah, and, and the it's like the subliminal messaging in ads that just crack me up. Like it's the most consequential election of our time. And it's like, well, okay, so that's you saying you want people to vote a certain way. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's the implied message. Yeah. If you don't vote this way, the world will end. Yeah. And I want to get to the news diet quickly because it's your current project. But I do want to linger just on, on one thing you said. I did cognitive behavioral therapy for a few years. I was struggling with depression and anxiety in the mid-2010s, and CBT was really helpful for me. And one of the biggest gifts of cognitive behavioral therapy that I took away and I still carry with me to this day is the view, the correct view, that you are not your ideas. You're not your thoughts. You can have a depressive thought or an anxious thought, and you can feel like that thought is you, right? Because your brain which is a part of you, is telling you things that sometimes aren't true. Telling you things about yourself, telling you things about the world, about your loved ones, about your own self-image, that because they're coming from you, feel like they are you. And over many months of therapy, this new belief, the correct one, that you're not your thoughts, was really very graciously and lovingly hammered into me to a point where I realized, okay, it's okay to have a thought in my mind and let it just kind of pass through. The thought isn't me. And it's kind of a revolutionary idea because it goes counter to kind of how we picture the self. And I think similarly with ideas or views, right? Like a political view or an idea we might have, you're not that. We think of ourselves as a train that's moving through the world and there's a bunch of cargo and various metaphorical passengers on it, right? Like we're the train and there's all this stuff inside of the train and that's who we are. But I really firmly believe, and I I try and get this message out as much as I can, you're not a train. You're a train station. Mm, mm -hmm. Ideas pass through you. The station remains. So in the same way that you had LA Lady Magazine, and then you had Exploring Minds, and now you have the news diet, have you betrayed yourself or become someone else that isn't Michelle Carroll now that you're no longer running LA Lady Magazine? No, that's stupid. That would mean that like anytime that someone launches a business and then that business fails or they sell the business or they, for whatever reason, start something else, that they're no longer themselves. 
The very principle still applies when it comes to politics. If you were more conservative in your youth and are more liberal as an adult or vice versa, or you're somewhere in the middle, you felt one way about police reform in 2018 and you feel differently now, you haven't betrayed yourself. An idea has stayed in the train station and passed through. The very idea that we are our ideas is what makes conversations so difficult because so many people, and I am empathetic to why they feel this, but it's incorrect. They feel that when one of their ideas is attacked or questioned, that their personhood is being attacked or questioned. And that's so unhealthy because that's not what we are. We're a person with many ideas that can change over time. We are not concretely tied to our ideas. Anyway, that's my TED Talk, but it's something I'm very passionate about. Yeah, you know, and that make that reminds me of the advice, I forget who, I'm sure many people have kind of said this, but the concept of in order to become the person that you want to be, in order to become a better or the best version of yourself you can be, that probably means you have to leave parts of your current self or parts of your past self behind. You have to let them go because you can't evolve. I mean, that's a definition of evolution. Like you can't evolve while carrying around all of this weight from your past or your current that just aren't serving you anymore. And I think it's the same with politics or any way of thinking that you have that you're very inflexible in. What we were saying with people holding such strong convictions now, like people are so sure and certain in their opinions now and their stances now. And I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. I mean, you know, hey, if you're like really educated on something and you feel very passionately about this and this is your, you know, heart and soul, good for you. I suspect that right now a lot of people who are coming out strong one way or another probably have a lot of evolution to still do. And I, and I don't say that condescendingly. I say that because I, I feel like we all do, to be honest. Even if you have a PhD in something, I imagine you still have a lot to learn about that topic. And so I would hope that you're not so stiff in your ideas that you're done learning. Doesn't that sound like a silly idea? Because it's essentially what we're saying is that they'll like get a stance or they'll learn a little bit about a topic and then they feel like they're done learning. They feel like they're done. They, they know everything they need to know. And this is now something they're going to advocate for or be an activist for or, or just a, a political opinion they're going to hold. And the idea of I'm done learning, I don't need to learn anymore, I think is a universal myth. I don't think that there's a person on earth that doesn't need to keep learning and keep evolving. Yeah, the whole idea of happily ever after, that's something for fairy tales, not for human growth. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as the end. And again, like the top of the top of industries, even them, I would say they don't know everything. Of course they don't. Nobody does. (laughs) So everyone acts like they do know everything and then not even close. Yes. And I think it's because being vulnerable can be scary. Being vulnerable at scale admitting you were wrong or maybe just misinformed or just admitting that like, hey, I had this view at one point in my life and now I've changed. And it doesn't mean that I've betrayed my past self. It just means that I've changed. Yeah. And and I'll say that that was a big gift from Exploring Minds. I think the show changed my life in many ways. And that being one of them, which was letting go of the ego. That was a huge 
kind of mantra for us on that show was if we have an ego as you know producers and me as a host and and that if we have egos this isn't going to work i mean this is going to be no different than the combative shows that we all <laughs> know of very well it's either we're going to be fully in agreement and we're going to talk about how we're in agreement for two hours, or I'm just going to push back and we're going to have an argument for two hours, or if it's like mainstream five minutes. If we have egos, we're going to be no different than those people. And we're trying so desperately to do the exact opposite of those shows. And the only way that that's going to work is if We don't care if we look like idiots, if we don't care if we're proven wrong on something, or if we flat out say, I don't know what you just said. Can you please expand on that? Which I did many times and developing that skill of letting the ego go. And to be honest, kind of saying, I don't care. I don't care if people think I'm stupid. I don't care if I'm the literally the only one in this country or world or whatever that didn't know this one fact. And I had to find out about it in front of thousands of people on the show. What is the worst case scenario with that? A few people maybe think you're a little dumb. Okay. But now I know that fact. And that's so much more valuable than acting like I know everything and being closed-minded. So that's something I'll take with me for the rest of my life, I think, is that it's okay to say, I, I don't know. And that the ego really is the death of so many good things. That's such a beautiful sentiment. There is so much power in saying, I don't know, because it offers you the opportunity to learn. But speaking of growth and change, let's go to the news diet, which is quite different from exploring minds in all the aforementioned ways. So I guess a similar question to the one I asked earlier, what inspired you to start the show and choose this format specifically because it is considerably different from exploring minds? Yeah, it is different. And it was... It was intentionally different for a pretty specific reason, which is, you know, exploring minds. I loved doing that so much. And I want to do that again at some point. I'm sure you can attest to if you love doing these longer form interviews, especially as the interviewer, where you get the privilege of listening and picking brains of really, really cool people. It's kind of addictive. So I definitely want to get back to that. But I did notice something doing Exploring Minds is that these longer form conversations, there are types of people that want to sit and listen to a conversation for one to two to three hours. And that's awesome. And for the first time really ever, I think they finally have that option to do that. There's so many good shows now, you know, this show, Exploring Minds, we were doing it. Obviously, you know, Joe Rogan's been doing it for forever. And there's so many options now. And that's so, so great. I did notice, though, that there's also this huge market of people, I guess, that really want to know what's going on in the world. They want to be informed, but they don't want to sit for a one to two to three hour conversation. Or maybe they do want to, but they're too busy. They're parents. They're going to school and working a job. They got side hustles and they just simply don't have time or the desire to sit down and get super nitty gritty. But they do want to be informed. I saw this in so many of my friends, my family. It's funny, we were doing Exploring Minds and it was 
it was doing great. And to us, it was something we were so passionate about. But like, there actually weren't that many people in my life that actually watched it. And so I recognize that there's this huge group of people that want to learn about the world, but they're so sick of the current options, legacy options, CNN, Fox, MSNBC. They're also not interested in that. So they kind of feel like there's not really an option for them and they kind of check out. Some of the brightest people I know, they have amazing careers. They're so smart and they're so bright and driven and all this and that. And like, they're like, I just don't even listen to the news anymore. Like, I don't even know what's going on because I just can't handle it. I don't have the stomach for it. And I think that that's such a shame. And I also think that it's kind of a simple solution, to be honest. It's kind of like these people want to be informed. So what I'm trying to do with the news diet And it's still very new. And so I'm still finding my way with it. But I call it a healthier alternative to staying informed. And its characteristics are that it's simple, it's concise, and it's neutral to the extent that it can be. You know, I don't know. Can anything be truly neutral? I don't know. But I do genuinely try. I very intentionally pull sources from all political spectrums. For my next thing, I did want to explore this avenue and see if we could get a solution out there for this group of people that don't really care to be a part of a super nuanced conversation every day, but they do want to be informed and they want it to be in a way that's not contentious or so stiff or so serious. That's how I look at the world, to be honest. Or I should say, I I try to look at the world through a lens of curiosity and fascination. And those are not two words I would use to describe our current news landscape. It's a huge business industry. It's very sensational. It's very, or if it's not sensational, it's very boring. And so I'm trying to find something that's just very different, you know? Yeah. So, so that's what I'm trying to do with, with the news diet is make something a little bit fresher, still informative, uh, maybe a little bit younger and have that as kind of a fun little flagship show that's easy to watch, easy to digest, help people to be informed in 10 minutes a day. And then at some point, I definitely would love to get back to the longer form format in addition to the news diet. So you kind of have these two options, which I think could be a really cool offering, if you will, of like, if you want something concise, you don't have a lot of time that day, or this is just more your style. Great. You got the news diet. If you do want to do a deeper dive, then we got that too. Yeah, I think that having those two could make for a really, really cool, fulfilling, robust life for myself, selfishly. (laughs) When I was in college, I was a DJ at a college radio station. And this college radio station, famously and infamously, would only allow you to play as a DJ music that was not on mainstream radio. So the upside of that was that I got to discover a lot of amazing musicians and albums and bands that I never would have otherwise discovered. We had a huge catalog of vinyls and CDs. I think at that time, KDVS, it was the Davis College radio station, had the largest library of albums of all Northern California radio stations. It was impressive, right? But if an artist appeared on mainstream radio, you could no longer play any of their albums. It was like... Very extreme in that way. So you wanted them to not be successful. (laughs) Basically. (laughs) But KDVS introduced me to this genre of music, which I do not like, called noise. 
and what noise is for our listeners, if you're unfamiliar with it. And ordinarily, I would say, go check it out. But I don't know if you need to in this case. Apologies to anyone who does like this genre. Its whole mission is to be non-melodic. So I remember there was this DJ who would play just noise, the, the music genre, for two hours at a time, once a week, every time he would host a show. And every single time I would tune in or walk by his booth as he was playing it, it just sounded like untuned guitars, trumpets playing out of time, pots and pans being banged together. Oh, so it's literally noise, not music. Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's musical instruments that are being played in non, they would define it as like non-classical ways and deconstructing what music is and, you know, trying to be subversive, et cetera, et cetera. And look, I can appreciate subversion. I can appreciate playing around with methods and with genre, but no matter how much I tried to get into it, it never seemed like music to me. There was no chorus. There were no verses. There was, there was no progression. It was anti-music. The whole reason I bring this up is Imagine if you lived in a world in which the only music you ever heard from when you were a child all the way until you were an adult, for whatever reason, you lived on a compound or we lived in an alternate reality, the only music you ever heard was the noise genre, right? And so then if someone went to you and you were like, hey, are you into music? You're like, no, I don't like music. Music's not for me. I don't think that I'm really a music fan. I try and stay away from music. It's not really for me. And then all of a sudden you heard jazz or the blues or country, or rock, anything else that wasn't noise. And you heard it for the first time, and someone said, this is music too. You're like, well, no, this can't be music. The music that I know that I grew up with isn't anything like this. And I feel like that's what's happened with news. Yeah. And I feel like that's what you're addressing with the news diet, right? For so long, especially in modern history, we have attached the idea of news with hyper-opinionated, extremist, everything is black and white. You're on this side or the other side. It's made for clickbait. It's made to grab your attention. So we have attached that idea of what news is with a subset of what news is. And so I think what you're trying to do with the news diet is to show people who maybe have just listened to the genre of noise their whole life and have checked out and said, maybe music's not for me. You're trying to show them jazz. Yeah, I mean, gosh, the comparison to jazz, that that would be like my goal. That would be my dream because, you know, obviously jazz is just the best. But I think that that is a really cool way of describing what I'm trying to do. And you're exactly right that I think the current news landscape is pretty much presenting the events of the world in just one way that it can be presented, which generally means a very negative, scary way. I mean, the news, they're not going to report on good things happening. You know, maybe they'll be like, oh, this lab thinks that maybe discovered some kind of progress towards a cure or something like that. Right. But those are always kind of pushed down. Unfortunately, they just don't get the traction that they want, which is a lot. And when I say they, I'm, I'm mostly speaking on mainstream legacy media right now. They have a lot to pay for in terms of stakeholders, investors, operations, just overhead in general. They need millions and millions of dollars to operate. And so they need to make a lot of money, which means they need to draw in a lot of eyes. And unfortunately, maybe finding a cure for a disease possibly is probably not going to 
get those views. And so what it's turned into is just a constant stream of fear and tragedy. And what's interesting with that, and and again, this is what I would love to try to solve with the news diet. There's tragic things going on in the world every day. Unfortunately, that's always been the case. And that's always going to be the case. There's always going to be an unlimited amount of horrible things happening around the world. And I think it's a good thing that we're all informed about that. And, you know, someone has to report on that, right? If people want to learn about it, someone has to go and be there on the front lines and experience it firsthand. And then they're going to relay that information back to us. Okay, great. My question is, does it always have to be through a lens of tragedy as opposed to, again, curiosity. One example could be, let's just say the conflict in Ukraine right now. So obviously, there's no doubt that it's an awful situation all around. I mean, it's been pretty much a lose-lose situation this entire time for everyone that's involved and even those who aren't involved, right? Okay, we all know this. How about we maybe turn the energy a little bit and say, what else is going on here other than just the dead bodies and, again, tragedy? Well, the supply chain issue, I mean, that's kind of interesting. Russia's strategy and motivation, that's interesting because, believe it or not, there's more perspectives out there other than just they're evil and they want to take over Ukraine. And I'm not saying I agree or disagree with any of them, but I am saying that those different perspectives are out there. So that's interesting. Ukraine's strategy that's been decently successful up to now in terms of not having their entire country taken over, that's interesting. The U.S. and a lot of other Western countries' support and aid that has helped Ukraine stay afloat this whole time, that's interesting. Is that sustainable? That's interesting. So it's a shame that all of these things that are happening in the world, which again, there's always going to be these things, They're resorted to the tragedy. Of course, that's going to scare viewers. Of course, that's going to make us all anxious and sad and depressed. And we are becoming more sad, anxious, and depressed. Our youth is becoming more sad, anxious, and depressed. And it's like, well, of course we are. We're watching this 24-7. It's in our social media feeds. I think there's a stat out there that about one in 10 American adults check the news every hour. So if this is what we're seeing every hour, of course, why would we be happy? When I hear people say, things have never been worse, or I wouldn't want to have kids because I wouldn't want them to come into this world that we're living in. And when I hear that, I think, what are you watching? That's the first thing that my mind goes to is what are you watching? Because that is such a nihilistic way of living when maybe in some ways you might feel like it's the truth. Like, I don't want to bring a child in this world for X, Y, Z. Okay, fine. I have a feeling, though, that a lot of the people with that mentality are probably getting that from half-truths. Or I should say maybe like one perspective that they're hearing over and over and over that the world is awful, the world is on fire, you know, everyone's (laughs) dying, everyone's evil. 
And I think that that's just so unfortunate because in my opinion, what I've learned through Exploring Minds, through the news diet, and now having followed the news very closely for a while now, I just simply don't think that that's true. I think it's that it's one perspective that people are just hearing over and over. And it's unfortunate that that's pretty much how the news industry is right now. They cling on to the same lens. And then that's kind of the lens. Maybe down the road, it'll start to pivot a little bit and they'll all kind of do it together. I think my approach is to try to look at things at the forefront and be like, oh, what's going on here? You know, I I try my best to. So you have the lens, a binary example. You have like, you know, a liberal lens and a conservative lens. And okay, great. Let's start there. What are those two lenses? Because it's probably somewhere in the middle or at least whatever. It's just good to know both sides. There's a lot more to this. I think that was one of our taglines in Exploring Wines was something along the lines of there's a lot more out there than we're led to believe. So just trying to break those walls a little bit, because I just at this point, I simply don't think it's true what we're being told out there or that it's the only truth that we're hearing. Absolutely. I mean, if you were given only two colors of paint, red and green, and then I challenged you to paint a portrait of Los Angeles or New York or Seattle or Austin, just using those two colors, and then you came back to me with your painting, it would be wrong of me to critique you and say, well, this isn't an accurate painting of how the Los Angeles skyline looks. But that's so often what we're presented with in our politics. There's two colors. You know, there's two options. That's how you should see the world. But if those are the only two options you're given, a left and a right, two crayons to paint the world with, your view of the world will never be accurate because the world is so much more vibrant and complex and complicated and beautiful and strange and weird and awful and amazing and horrific. And yet from birth, we've just been given two colors and then we're surprised when our articulation of the world is inaccurate. Yeah. I just think of this example that I think... (laughs) really solidified why I'm trying to do what I'm, I'm trying to do. I was at a, a bar and I was talking to this girl. Both of us just happened to be there by ourselves and we were just chatting and she worked in the nonprofit world and she was a strong liberal that just kind of came up. And somehow the topic of human trafficking came up and she was telling me that for a long time, she said, I legitimately for years thought human trafficking was a conservative conspiracy theory. She's like, I knew it happened a little bit, but I thought it was this crazy idea that this group that, you know, was opposite of me was trying to push. And then through her work came to find out that it was very much real and that it was very much an insane issue that we have in this world. And her mind was just kind of blown, like, how on earth did I go so long thinking this thing and not knowing about this very big reality? And I just remember thinking in that moment, like, yep, this is exactly why I'm trying to open up the definition of what a news show means. Yes. And in wondering how she could have been blind to such a thing, articulated exactly why she was. One of the biggest barriers I come across when I'm striving to have productive political conversations with my friends or colleagues in the real world, I'm blessed that I have this podcast because I can actually have the kind of conversations I want to have. Right. And I get to select the exact guests I have on to ensure that the conversations are productive. But why it's so hard in real life is that we have been trained 
to silo both sources and ideas as either left or right, and then subsequently good or bad, rather than real or false or effective or ineffective. To use an earlier example that is especially ludicrous, the very idea that COVID originated and leaked from a lab is still to this day considered quote-unquote right-wing. And the natural wet market hypothesis is considered left-wing. If you were an alien looking at the world and someone told you that, that would sound insane. Why would the origins of a virus be a left or right-wing idea or view? And so my question is, is like, how can we have productive conversations across the political aisle without first resolving that issue? The problem of not looking at new sources, reform proposals, or even simply events that happen in the world agnostically and objectively. Yeah. Oh, man, I know. That is maybe the question that I'm also trying to figure out because I do think that that's the root of so much of our issues today, so much of our division today. Real quick on that example that you just gave of COVID. Remember those two glorious weeks? Um, not and glorious is, you know, obviously a funny word to say, but when COVID first hit, when everyone was like, this is going to bring the country together <laughs> for once. This isn't political. This is, you know, about humanity and, and us coming together and getting through this together. And then it got super political, like super fast. Yeah. Those were the days. Good two weeks. Good. Yeah. 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 Good. Good two weeks <laughs> for politics when the world yeah. was falling apart. <laughs> But I actually have thought that very, very sad thought that, you know, when 9-11 happened, the country truly did come together. That was truly a moment of unity. I mean, for the most part, you know, everyone was so traumatized and so in shock. And at least I felt like there really was a sense of clinging to your fellow American in that way, truly transcending politics and all this and that, at least for like a little while. I've thought if something like that happened again today, maybe COVID was kind of a version of that. I don't know if we would have that again. And to yes and you, I don't believe it would have happened during 9-11 had social media existed. Right. It would not have happened. The problem is everything you've been talking about during this episode is that the rise of social media and with it, the destruction of traditional income streams of legacy news organizations which has then created a subscriber-based structure. Talked about this a bit with Isaac Saul, the founder of Tangle News, who you introduced me to. The destruction of the traditional news media source of income led to a subscriber model, which then created this weird incentive structure, which meant that in order to keep the newspaper alive, they had to make their subscribers happy. And that ties back to something we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, which is If you're an organization like the New York Times or the Washington Post and your audience skews a certain kind of way to go to a particularly American sentiment, the customer is always right. If you upset your subscribers and they get angry and tweet you or leave or unsubscribe, your very business could go under. And so we have these legacy news organizations which are now subject to the same kind of thing that would affect someone who streams on YouTube, something known as audience capture. If you become captured by your audience and you have to make them happy all the time, otherwise they'll leave you and your organization could default, you're in a really dangerous place. And so social media led to that audience capture. And I think for that very reason, if 9-11 were to happen today, God forbid, we wouldn't rally together the way we did 21 years ago because I think we rallied together because it was before social media caused all the chaos we experienced today. 
Yeah. Yeah. 100%. There were a few other shows that were starting out about the same time as we were doing Exploring Minds, and they were doing very similar formats, actually. Longer form, very conversational. And at the time, they were also very similar in that they were trying to open up the minds of all these great figures with all this knowledge and trying to burst the bubbles that we all live in and explore different topics, like the whole thing. It was very similar in that way. And over the years, it's been interesting to see how some of them have, you know, they're still up and running, how they've pretty much done what these legacy news shows have done, which is, you know, they saw the topics that drew in the most eyes and they just doubled down and tripled down. And now that that's pretty much their show all the time. And it's such a shame because in my opinion, they were doing something really cool in the beginning. And then they kind of, in my opinion, they fell into the trap of the easy money, which is the easy way of getting traffic essentially. But what I'm trying to do here, and I have to be honest, Michael, I don't know if it's going to work or not. What I'm trying to do is start with the foundation of respect and civility and curiosity. And this is what we do with Exploring Minds, and I think it was working. We started with that and essentially signaled to our audiences or anyone that came across our show, if you're not down for that, for curiosity, respect, civility, then this isn't a show for you. And what that did by priming our audiences with those characteristics, it allowed us the flexibility to not have to be stuck to a certain perspective or a certain angle or even have a very segmented audience in that way that we had to speak to, right? Because the foundation was not conservative values, liberal values, conspiracy theories. Those were not our foundations. Our foundations were civility and respect and curiosity. And I was very pleasantly surprised that it seemed like our audience members that stuck around and became fans of the show were down for that. And you could kind of sense that in the comments. People were enthusiastic about that. And when other people would kind of trash us a little bit in the comments for whatever reason. Uh, you know, a lot of them would come out and be like, well, that's not necessary or, you know, that, that's not really what this show is about. Or, you know, she's not trying to do a gotcha moment or she's not here to prove anything. She's exploring and being curious. And so like, chill out, crazy commenter. So it was working, which is very encouraging. I will say, though, I am very curious to know on a grand scale how that will pan out. Meaning, I'm so not interested in being hyper sensational and dramatic. I'm so not interested in that at all. I don't have the stomach for the combativeness that so many other shows do and are successful at it. Has there ever been a time where you have been caught up in feeling very convicted about something or very caught up in the kind of religious fervor of feeling absolutely certain about a view or a group or an idea or your tribe or whatever? And how do you feel when that happens? Because I'm wondering if we're similar here. I think that there was a certain type of person out there, and I, I don't think this group is insignificant. When I feel really certain about something or when I feel really ultra convicted about something or have an almost kind of religious fervor around a topic, I get a little scared. 
Like I don't like how that feels. When I realize it's happening, I, I actually get really anxious and upset with myself and I just don't like it. In fact, this example might be a little too weird for some people, but it's one of the reasons that I actually don't like going to large sporting events. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're like, I can see the both teams. <laughs> you know, the thing is, this might sound silly to people. I think it's just in my DNA. But even though I went to USC for grad school, I didn't go to my first USC football game until after I graduated because film school took up so much of my time. I went to one game and I actually ended up leaving about halfway through. There was something about 60,000 people all chanting in unison, even though it was something totally innocuous that made me uncomfortable. And in the political realm or in the realm of ideas, when I encounter someone who feels so convicted in what their belief is that they'll denigrate and abuse and mistreat and slander another human being, I find that so alienating. And when I start to feel that very emotion within myself, I get scared of how I'm feeling. Does that make sense? It's so interesting you use that comparison to the sports game because I was just thinking this past week with the elections going on, the day after election day, so the ballots were being counted and everyone's on edge trying to you know see who's coming out on top. I had that thought. I thought, this is sport. Political junkies, they look at this as their sport. It's entertainment to them. Because I started to feel that in myself a little bit, which is funny because I was intentionally trying to avoid that in my show, in my coverage, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to like speculate months out from the midterms, what's going on in the midterms. I'm going to wait until we're actually there. So there's something actually tangible to talk about. But the day after, I did have that feeling of like, ooh, what are the results? What are we looking at here? And I was like, oh, this is how people in this world, like very deeply, you know, junkies, this is their sport. And so it's so funny that you compare it to being in a stadium of tens of thousands of people who 100% staunchly are for one team or the other. Anyway, in terms of how I feel or what I do, if and when I have that feeling, I think at this point, for several years now, I've been really, really working on checking myself with that very specific thing of, again, kind of back to the ego, right? I think at this point, I'm pretty good at telling myself and other people when I'm talking about this stuff, I feel this way as of right now with the information I have now. And then, hey, if I'm in a conversation and somebody says something to me, like another point, and I don't have something back to respond to about that in terms of, let's just say, a friendly debate or something, I have to acknowledge that they made a really good point and that, hey, maybe that's something I'm going to carry in my knowledge repertoire now, because that was a good point, And I have to acknowledge that. So at this point, I, I pretty much just say, you know, at this time, with what I know about it as of today, this is how I feel about it. But back in the day, <laughs> for sure, I would definitely have more convicted and heated exchanges because I, I thought I was right. But you don't understand. Looking back on that, I just hate that so much. I hate that for myself. <laughs> and I, I hate that for, I mean, to be honest, all of us, because it was rooted in insecurity and being afraid of being wrong. And that's such a bad way to go about life and just these things. And 
So yeah, I, I definitely used to give into that more. I think now at this point, and I, you know, I, I hope it's just a sign of maturity. I just try to catch myself. I really do. Because I mean, it's also at the impetus of what we do, our shows and then the news diet. It's like, if I'm going to advocate for this stuff, I really need to be on top of myself. Yeah, I think even Isaac, you, you talked about Isaac Saul from Tangle News. I think he does a really good job of that, too. That gives me a little bit of hope, actually. I do think that there's quite a few people in this space that are kind of seeing what we're seeing in terms of being over the extremism and the binary coverage and conversations and wanting to open that up and having to check ourselves and our egos and and acknowledging when we're wrong and being okay with that. I think there's more people coming to terms with that and developing these platforms rooted in that. And that makes me very happy. (laughs) So yeah, Tangle News, this show, there's a lot of really cool things popping up. So that's good. Well, and the News Diet, which I think is a really valuable resource. And like I said at the start of this podcast, I mean, each episode is five to 10 minutes at most. Every episode's under 10 minutes. It's a really tight, succinct, retrospective review on what the day's news is. And I highly recommend anyone who's unfamiliar with Michelle's show to check it out. And Michelle, I've really enjoyed having you on. I'd love to have you back on in 2023. I guess to wrap us out, one thing that I've been considering as I've been talking with different people on the show, entrepreneurs, people who take risks, people who start things, undertaking ambitious projects, things like starting LA Lady Magazine or starting the podcast like Exploring Minds or The News Diet, That's difficult. It's difficult to put yourself out there. And this is true for anyone who does any kind of endeavor in which they have to take a risk. It's difficult work. The chances of success are often slim. The chances for failure are high. So I have so much admiration for anyone who just strikes out and decides to start something new. So my question to you is, how do these three, I guess you could say chapters in your life, LA Lady Magazine, Exploring Minds, and The News Diet, how do you see them as representations of your own personal growth? Ooh, That is a great question. Within that frame, I mean, I think I'm able to look back at all of them. I know this might sound weird, but almost like glorified journal entries a little bit into my life, which I've never thought about it that way before. You know, LA Lady was such a specific chapter in my life. Clearly, you could tell what I was passionate about at that time. And, you know, LA Lady was very formative in many ways because that was my first foray into entrepreneurship and doing my own thing, being responsible for something outside of myself. And then you can see the evolution into Exploring Minds and then the evolution into the news diet. So I think it's really cool. And I think it's really beautiful, to be honest, because even though there might be parts of my old self that I might disagree with now or that I might not have liked about myself now, I can still look back at that and be like, yeah, but that was me then. And this is how far I've come since then. And that in and of itself is really cool. I was talking to someone the other day about the quote that I really like and I, I carry with me a lot, which is most people overestimate what they can do in a year, but they underestimate what they can do in 10 years. So I think when I look back at the things that I've done and that ended or, or pivoted, I'm very, very happy with where I've come now and what I'm doing now. And I, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for this kind of random journey that I've been down. 
And I hope I'm saying that in 10 more years, you know, however I get there and whoever I am in 10 years, I I hope it's someone that I'm proud of and that I'm doing the things that I feel compelled to do and look back at now at this time and I'm saying the same thing. To wrap us up, Michelle, I'm really excited at the prospect of you returning to the interview format because I imagine as our listeners have likely gleaned from our conversation, you're such a thoughtful and considerate individual who prioritizes complexity and nuance and deprioritizes extremism and hot takes and rushing to judgment. We just need more people like you out there. And so as a fan of Exploring Minds, as a fan of The News Diet, as a fan of you, Michelle Carroll, I'm looking forward to having you back on the scene as an interviewer, and I'm looking forward to watching your next News Diet episode when it comes out. So thank you again for your time, and thanks so much for the work that you do. Thank you so much, Michael. And you know, if and when that time comes that I I do kind of get back to interviewing, it will be very excited to re-enter the space with now similar fellow shows with similar missions like this one to do it alongside of and you know so many others so if and when that time comes that'll be a fun time but thank you so much for having me on this show and i'm happy to come back anytime this is great i look forward to it Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. I want to learn more about the Where We Go Next audience, which means I want to learn more about you and your thoughts on the show. So if you're listening right now, please send me an email at wherewegopod at gmail.com and let me know, one, what's your all-time favorite episode of the podcast and why? Two, what's your least favorite episode of the podcast and why? And three, Where would you like to see this show go next? And hey, while you're here, if you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you.